when he's not working as chief photographer for the Sydney Morning Herald, photojournalist Nick Moyer moonlights as one of Australia's leading storm chasers. Gary Cranich is photographer for Queensland Museum, and he has decades of experience photographing wildlife around Queensland, with much of his work focused on the Great Barrier Reef. You're about to hear Nick and Gary in conversation about our world, weather and environment, and how they've watched those change. I'm Claire Fletcher at the Walkley Foundation, and you're listening to a special edition of Walkley Talks, Conversations from Storyology, our 2018 Journalism Festival in Brisbane. This Storyology podcast is brought to you in partnership with Bond University. Welcome back to another session of Storyology 2018 in Brisbane. Then I'm Emma Griffiths, and this is shooting the storm. Two amazing photographers here to talk about the weather, climate and the environment, Gary Cranich and Nick Moyer. But this is also a discussion about artistic obsession, the hunt for treasure and stirring the soul. So let's get to it then. You're both obsessed with capturing nature. I think we can say that. We can agree on that. This is an obsession. Yeah, that's right. Gary, when did that start for you? Very early, 11, 11 years old, I was processing film in the, uh, the laundry at home and ruining the carpet, upsetting my mother. So very, very early on. I think back now, it's quite weird being a nerdy photographer person who knows all about f-stop, aperture and exposure at 11. So that's when it began. What were you taking photos of at 11? Oh, yeah. So um, it was mainly sporty sort of stuff, but I was doing long exposures and things like that on my tripod and, yeah, so... And then water and the ocean, that's when it kicked in. I, it's funny, I look back on those pictures now and realise something was going on with the water. There were a lot of pictures of me as a young guy near the water, near the beach, near the ocean. So that's how it began. Nothing much has changed then. Uh, Nick, news and current affairs has been pretty much your bread and butter. So when did nature begin to take over? Uh, I mean, it's always been there. I've always been had an obsession with nature, whether it's geology or um, the weather, but I didn't really um, start focusing my photography on it until about 97, 98, um, and then I actually, just a storm, I was living in Coogee and then a storm went over one night. I took some shots and I went, I think I'll turn this into a photo essay and really it hasn't stopped. Your bushfire coverage, uh, 2002, 2003, we might have a look at some of those photos coming up on the screen. Uh, they won awards, Australian Press Photographer of the Year, World Press Photo Award as well. Yeah. This was a pretty intense summer of fires. How much of that summer were you out there f- shooting them? I yeah, was out there for essentially every fire. It was really um, full on. It was um, to actually really nail those pictures on cameras back then that were, you know, the digital was pretty new um, and, and the conditions that you're putting the cameras through, um, lighting conditions are really difficult. So. It, it meant going sense? out to... Can you explain that to us? So they, they, it, it was like with, with film, you were essentially... Let's say... I'll use numbers. If you did a big scan on a negative back then, you could probably get a 50 or 60 megabytes of information out of it, whereas you went down to maybe about three or four megabytes of information out of the early digital cameras, maybe even less. So it meant that um, if you're photographing flames then uh, and exposing for the flames, then everything else went black. Um, because the, they just didn't have the latitude. So if you were photo- concentrating on the shadows, then everything else went bright. You can see it there with the... the see how the, the flames in the tree are, are completely um, blown out, uh, whereas the... Um, so I've exposed for their faces in that picture. So, Nick, this looks pretty scary. How close are you getting to the fire there? Yeah, yeah you know, that's just across the road. That's sort of a typical bushfire in western suburbs of Sydney, um, it, you know, they were protecting homes there. Um, uh, you can get, uh, if you're with the fireys, then you're going to be fairly safe. I Do mean, you always stay with the fireys? Not always, but the thing is, it, like I make judgement calls about when it's safe to do it or not. But generally, I mean, for a picture, um, you're after that um, interaction where people are, you know, taking a stand against, um, you know, this fire moving through. 
um, particularly with um, volunteer um, fire brigades, you're getting people from across the community. So you can have quite young up to, you know, both genders uh, up to the eight, into 60s, 70s years old, and, and they're all taking a stand. And so I, I really, um, I really enjoy uh, all the camaraderie with them as well when you are, uh, you know, stand, it, there might only be five or six people who all experience how amazing a particular moment is. And so it's a, a privilege to be there with them. Could you give us an example of an amazing moment? Uh, yeah, look, the one up there at the moment um, uh, is where a crew abandoned their vehicle because the um, fire actually became too hot. Um, and, and if a crew is abandoning their vehicle, it means yeah, it's becoming quite dangerous. So they ran up the street. It was a thin fire just racing through. It, it came at their truck and it was blistering the paint. And they weren't, they obviously didn't have time to put out their, their sprinkler bar these days to protect them, but they got out and, and, and ran. There's also um, things like Canberra were, is where I had a, a really dumb moment where I, I was racing. So this is the massive fire in 2002 that took out 2003. A few, 2003, a few yeah. suburbs yeah. So, in um, Canberra. It was yeah, massive. And, and like it's, it was, you could see it was going to happen probably at least a day or two beforehand. And I was racing down there that day because I wanted to get hold of a full drive and that held me back half an hour. And um, I was trying to shortcut through to Duffy, which is where it slammed into in the end. Um, and doing that shortcut put me through an area of grassland. And I knew where it was in my head, but the smoke just got thicker and thicker and thicker to the point where I actually had to open up the door to see the white lines on the road. And it was like, essentially, you know how, was it boiling a frog or whatever, you just slowly warm it up. I got myself in too far. Um, and to the point where I didn't know where I was in relation to the fire. And then a big glow came up on my right, and I freaked out and just drove off through a fence and just got out of there. I shouldn't have put myself into that sort of scenario. I possibly could have kept going, but it could have ended up badly for so me as well. So when you say you drove through a fence and got out of there, what were you driving across then? Uh, a field, yeah. But it, the fire wasn't moving so fast as to outpace a vehicle in a field, but I knew, I knew where I was generally, and, and it didn't take long to get out of the smoke, as in the intense smoke, to be able to see where I was. Yeah, it was it was dumb. He, he's owning it. He's yeah, owning it. well, it was a big learning lesson for for, for, for me to learn um, how to approach a fire in the future. Was is now I tend to tend to come in through burnt out areas and then move into where I can see where the fire is moving properly. Um, you always want to try and get into that interface between the fire and, and the and the homes, but on days like that and Black Saturday, it's 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 actually too it's becomes unsurvivable if you're in the, the wrong area. Okay, uh, what's your packing list to stay safe and have what you need when you're going to cover a fire? Well, you've got to do a, a media training course, so that's number one, um, and then you've got to have um, helmet and, and um, Proban uh, coated outfit, which essentially it will burn if you've got flames on you, but it'll stop burning once you get away from the flames. So it's kind of you know a bit of support there to make you feel good, but it's yellow. That's kind of the coolest thing. Um, but uh, essentially, the the biggest thing is is staying calm and, and and logical, and just being aware of what's going on around you. A lot of water. And despite the fact that I always have water with me, I've collapsed three times um, out in the field. It's, um, it's like that. From uh, what? Dehydration? Uh, and heat exhaustion, yeah. Um, it, well, yeah well, heat stroke. It didn't get the heat stroke. I didn't have to be hospitalised. But um, uh, it, it happens, you know, ten minutes. Uh, like I turned up, houses burning all around you, you're going intensely, you're running, you're running, and then suddenly it's like being drunk, you can't think. You actually can't even form a thought, um, and then you, you're on the ground. But um, the other thing is is not doing it alone. I'll often have, uh, if it's a big day, I'll either have a, a try and have a journalist with me, um, or preferably another fire photographer who's um, experienced. Even if it's with the opposition, because in days like that, um, it, there's lots of pictures to be had. 
but it's also things go wrong um, very quickly with fires. They're actually fires are a lot harder than storms to get right. They, so the opposition is all right if they might help save your life. Yeah. That's good yeah, then. Yeah. That's good to know. Um, and Nick, how do you make sure that you're not getting in the way and creating extra work for fireys? By being experienced and, and, and not... It tends to be, if they say, can you not go down there, then you don't go down there. Um, not getting in between the fire and them. Um, I guess it's a, it's, a, it's a call. Usually they're really happy to have you there. Um, they're pleased that somebody's there to, to see them covering the, the event. Um, so I guess it's... I can't actually think of many times when they've been really annoyed. If There's been a couple of times when... Um, uh, we can move on with one of the pictures. Um, well, not that one, but there's a... Well, no, keep them up, it's okay. Um, uh, there's a picture where there's a guy turning around and he's pointing and this uh, home burning in the background. Um, yeah, that, that one there. That one we got isolated, so we got surrounded by fire and they were stressed that they may have a couple of media with them that didn't know what they were doing. But I convinced them, no, I know what I'm doing. I've done lots of fires before. Um, we're just going to stay put. Um, not going to get in your way. And then once they're busy, you go out and take photographs of them. <laughs> but essentially, you just don't do anything dumb. Um, <laughs> don't do anything but dumb. But uh, it, it gets stressful. That was a stressful day because one of the, their vehicles went up the road and they lost um, vision. They couldn't see through the smoke and they slammed straight into a building. And um, then they came back and we helped out with a triage um, with broken arms and, and stuff like that. So it's kind of all hands on deck. You might be photographing, but then sometimes you might be helping drag a hose and stuff like that. It's being, not being a pest, um, making sure that you've got a bit of ex... Like, I trained as a firefighter um, uh, instead of just the media course so that I could actually be useful in, you know, in a nasty situation. Not many uh, people would have done that. There wasn't a media course at the time, so um, I said, oh, well, if I want to be there, I need to do this. This was in like 99, I think, and um, so the RFS, uh, the New South Wales Rural Fire Service is actually one of those groups that actually has an astoundingly good relationship with the media for a government organisation. Um, so it was, um, they said, yeah, well, why don't you come in and do a firefighter training? And I went, okay, cool. And they did it. And it's actually been really good. It just gives you a lot of insight into what they have to um, do uh, on the ground and to have to protect properties and when it's time to move out and, um, uh, and, and how they operate and how the organisation operates. Um, I mean, it's like any, being a journalist in any field. If, once you specialise, um, you tend to get... Um, they either hate you or they tend to love you. <laughs> well, from one extreme to the other, extreme of nature, really, uh, and Gary Cranich goes to the extreme of going underwater to get the shots to enthrall you. Uh, so, Gary, underwater is your territory. Yeah, there's no, no flames underwater. It's different, Nick. <laughs> well, you can with the, those tor oh, torchy those torchy things, you're right. A gas axe, yeah. So you it's all are about right. commitment, mate. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Toughen up, mate. Yeah. Yes, underwater, yeah. This manta ray... Uh, you've got a series of photos here. This really moved you, this whole experience. Can yeah. you tell us what's happening here? Okay. So um, this is, uh, this is a, a manta ray. They're a big animal, five, five and a half metres across from tip to tip. And I was in the water by myself, which is generally not a smart thing to do, but I actually quite like being in the water by myself. Um, I don't have anyone else to look after but myself. So... Um, I'd been in the water all day this, this day and uh, manta rays uh, um, are a strange kind of an animal. They remind me of a spaceship, you know. So I was about 600 metres offshore. I knew they'd be in this feeding pattern. And, um, yeah, they were just coming towards me like spaceships. And uh, if you can imagine this room is the ocean, everybody here, right? So there's nothing else around you except blue. So you can't see the bottom. There's just you and blue. And from the back of the room comes this manta ray like a, 
stormtrooping spaceship towards you. So what I was doing was just holding my position in the water. That's oh, I think the aliens are noise. trying to communicate with us, he, are they? Here comes the spaceship. We've organised this. Um, yeah. So, oh, that was weird. Anyway, so these manta rays feed in that top one foot of the water and this one just kept coming back towards me and I just held my position in the water pretending I wasn't there and it just swam straight towards me and this is shot on a 15mm lens so it's um, here where Nick is and just as it would get to me, Nick the manta ray. Keep going Nick, that's good. Keep going, yeah. <laughs> just as it would get to me, it would look me, look me straight in the eye like Nick's doing and then just go under my fins and miss my fins by about that much completely aware of me and then head off and disappear again. And then 10 minutes later, he would come in on the same line and just follow straight in towards me. So it, aware of me and, yeah, it so was... So, yes, yeah. Gary, because you were saying you were trying to pretend you weren't there, yeah. but that manta ray, that animal, was checking you out. Fully aware of my existence, yeah. So um, it's an example of... Uh, it was, it's an interaction that has always stayed with me because the manta ray just looked at me and looked me in the eye and just said, yeah, meh, you know, you're, you're there. But, you know, it's certainly aware for such an enormous big animal to be aware of how it conducts itself and how it can... It knows where all parts of its body are. You know, whales are the same too. So, yeah, so that... And manta rays, as you can see, this image under here, they have a footprint underneath them. So that's like a fingerprint, the pattern on, on their belly. Which one's that? The one near um, the... Yeah, so see this under, underneath view of this manta ray. Those, that spot pattern is unique to individuals. Mm -hmm. So there's, a, there's been a long project... Um, looking at individuals. It's called Project Manta. It's been running for about 10 years and it started at Lady Elliot Island and photography's played a huge part in identifying these animals and identifying individuals and they get a name. So you can take a picture of these, these animals and you can actually name so the manta So have you named rate. your manta mate? No, I haven't. I need okay. to do that. Yeah, yeah you really yeah. do. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're amazing animals and, um, so yeah. You, you're underwater. This yeah. is happening. It's... Yeah really almost, you described it as almost spiritual, what's happening, but you ha have to be safe. So what are you also trying to be aware of as this is happening? Well, this afternoon it was dark when I got out of the water and I knew I was a fair way off the, um, off the beach. So you, you're certainly aware of your own limitations physically as to what you can do. I mean, I can swim. I'm a reasonably good swimmer, but you just know that, yeah, you are taking a few little risks um, around this space because currents can shift and change, but I, can, I could swim all day if I had to and I knew I'd be able to get back, back in, into the beach all right. But, yeah, just every now and again you, um, you have some situations where things can go a bit, bit wobbly on you in the water. You've got to be a good diver first to be an underwater photographer. Um, I've seen other photographers attempt underwater photography and they're they're no good at it because they're hopeless divers to begin with. So, and you've done commercial training yeah, as so a diver I, as well, yeah, haven't you? So I trained as a commercial diver in, uh, in the 90s, yeah, working on uh, shipwrecks on, on the Barrier Reef. So that, that was sort of the beginnings of my dive career. So that was, again, in the water by myself but with helmets on and all that sort of stuff. So deep work over 30 metres. So when has it gone a bit wobbly for you? When have things gone awry? Uh, I've, yeah, I've had a few. Um, I've had a few situations in the water where things have not gone tremendously well. I and I was talking to you about this earlier. I've never really spoken about it before, but um, I have seen a massive lump of iron go past me at warp speed while I was ascending a line. Um, I was getting out of the water. I've never spoken about this before, and. Um, yeah, I just happened to look up at the time that this bit of metal was flying down through the, through the water. So what were you doing? I was getting out of the water um, and I looked up and at warp speed, if you could imagine everyone in the room, you look up and it's just like watching time stand still and this massive lump of iron just was coming down the, the line. We use those sorts of things in commercial diving to do different stuff. I looked up and this lump of iron just went straight past where my head was. Yeah. 
So, and it's funny. So the guy, the guy who who was then running the deck, jumped in the water on snorkel, swam down to me, and and just went up to me and just parade in front of me, you know. And we never spoke about it again. Funnily enough, I actually didn't uh, tell the bosses at the no. I kept that quiet. Way, so yeah. so you didn't hear quiet. this today, okay. all right? Nobody heard this yet. So and and then another time, that same guy. It's interesting. We were doing something else, and and he was he was in the water. Um, Deep water again, uh, he had a float attached to him on the bottom doing some stuff. The float came dislodged uh, because it got bitten by a tiger shark, a tiger while I was in the Zodiac, bit this boy, put a hole in it. What's the Zodiac? It's an inflatable boat, right. yeah, that's what you dive out of. And um, then the rope came loose. So I've got a diver on the bottom in 36 metres of water. I have no idea where he is. I've got no point of reference because this tiger shark has just smashed this float. So I threw the float back into the water um, and watched it float and I picked this guy up in the water five, six hundred metres away. We were way out in the middle of nowhere and same guy, you know. And he's, he's always thanked me after it, you know. Every now and again when we see each other, we talk about that day, you know. Do you think I, you're like near-death buddies or something? I, I don't know what it is. I think we should stay away from each other. That's yeah. what we should be doing. <laughs> Do you, looking at these gorgeous photos now of what is uh, in our Great Barrier Reef, mm. do you ever just put the camera down and ogle with your actual eye? Like, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Or um, are you stuck behind the lens? Oh, well, so photography for me is this little voice. It's always there, okay? So uh, all the time I think about pictures and when I'm in the water, that's what I'm there to do. I do take in what's going on, but it is all about taking pictures when I'm in the water. If I, I'm never in the water without a camera if I do get in the water and I feel like an absolute, you know, I just feel wrong uh, not having it with me. So, yeah, short answer, uh, always thinking about pictures and what I can do and what I can see and how I can continue to tell the story of a very complex uh, ecosystem, yeah. Uh, how do you then? We've heard a couple of um, close calls that you've had there. Why do you think you haven't spoken about that one where this, the irons plummeting at you? Um, because yeah, um, I, it, well, it's it's not it's not heroic what I do. It's just part of the game. I think everybody has things that happen in their day to day job that. There's potential hazards. I think in the ocean, the uh, potential hazards are, they're amped up. Mistakes in remote locations uh, can be your last mistake is probably what I'm saying, you know. Uh, so you're constantly thinking of how, getting out. How do I get out? What will I do? What if? What if? What if? You know, I've seen anchors drag from boats that I was due to get back into and the boat is not there, so... There you are, I've been stuck in the water for four or five hours, hopefully waiting for the boat to come back, things like that, you know. So you just manage it um, and you don't, you, you have an out, you have a plan, yeah, as to... What was your plan there? <laughs> hold my position, hold my position. So the boat, the boat's your absolute saviour. The boat is just so important when you're in places like that. It's like you're talking about your vehicle... And, and your way out without your vehicle, your, your cactus, you know, uh, and the team around you. So in the ocean, if your boat's gone, you're gone, you know. Um, so, yeah, you, you have to rely a lot on the people around you uh, so you can get your job done. It looks nice and pretty and lovely, which is great. That's good. That's what it's all about. But in the back end, you're still managing those, uh, those risks, yeah. You've spent a lot of time on the Great Barrier Reef. How, I think in one year, or there was a, a few years there where you were diving a lot. Yeah. So how much of your life were you actually spending underwater? Okay, so there was one year there when I, I, I did extensive work on the Barrier Reef. I, I was there for about 120 days out of the 360 in a, 65 in a year. Maybe even a little bit more when you count some of the other peripheral things. So, And yet you didn't turn into Aquaman. No, I didn't. Didn't grow scales or anything like that. <laughs> I, I didn't become Marine Boy. No, no. I just, yeah, all the time in the water, just constantly trying to build up this, this resource. And that's my target is to, 
is to photograph everything that's going on in the Barrier Reef. I haven't finished yet. I have a long way to go. I have a lot more to do uh, in terms of uh, getting everything photographed. That's my plan, is to build the biggest image resource on the Great Barrier Reef, you know, and my employer, the Queensland Museum, supports me in that. And I work, I do a lot of partnerships with organisations, the Barrier Reef Foundation, I've been associated with them for about 11 years, um, Reef Check Australia, Earthwatch, Marine Parks, uh, the Commonwealth Group, so, yes, yeah, so lots of different groups and I collaborate. What have you seen change? Well, I, you know, I, I had no idea, obviously, that um, coral bleaching was going to have as much of an impact on the Barrier Reef. I don't, I, I, there were predictions that coral bleaching was, was always going to increase since it was first amped up, that first bleach in uh, 1998. But, you know, the last two that have happened in 2016-17, uh, back-to-back bleachings, they've had a, a massive impact on coral. But it's all the things that re relate to coral as well. Coral is, coral is the foundation of the barrier reef, but there's a whole lot of things that hang around coral and live off coral, fish. You've got you know, yeah. photos of a, a coral reseeding ah. project. Yeah, I yeah. So that's this, a um, if we can get to some of those photos as well and look at that, because yeah, uh, yeah, okay. yeah. uh, the human intervention that's now happening to yeah. try and protect the reef is okay. interesting. Yeah, so that's a project that's going on at Heron Island at the moment. Some fairly ground, groundbreaking research into actually farming coral. So I, I shot that project in, um, in October and it involves collecting coral spawn. Uh, as you know, coral, coral spawn happens in October once a year, five days after the full moon. Um, so they collect this coral spawn, they mix it up in the lab, they grow it and then they put it back into the ocean and let it settle on coral reefs again. So it's basic, it's highly interventionist, but it works. Um, so what, what we're seeing now with scientific sort of research is, you know, you had researchers who were sort of thinking, well, I'm going to be a marine biologist, there's cool stuff in the ocean, that'll be a good career, sounds great, I'll cover that. Now they're having to change up their thinking in terms of, I have to save this very thing that I've, that I thought was cool to work on, you know, and come up with methodology. So my yeah. apologies, Gary. We have the got coral that. ones are not there, that's but okay. the this story's doesn't fantastic. And yeah. it's the turtle ones we've actually got as well. Oh, we've got, so that's yeah. part of that story. Yeah, so this is another human intervention, another project. Yeah, so this is on Rain Island on the northern uh, barrier reef, way north. Rain Island is uh, sort of a, uh, a sanctuary, if you like. Um, Attenborough rates it as one of his top five locations in the world. And that's coming from Attenborough, who's seen a couple of things. It's pretty good. So it's a green turtle uh, rookery. Um, and what's going on there is, is uh, marine parks are now looking at um, this mortality rate of hatchlings. So what, was, what they discovered is that they were seeing 100% mortality rate in hatchlings. Uh, so none of them were surviving due to rising ocean levels. So parks have gone in and done some really interventionist work in changing the profile of the sand, installing fences so well, turtles they, don't they get stuck. Shipped sand in, or they shipped the sand in. They? they bought in, yeah, a hugely interventionist sort of thing. And parks generally are not that style. But that's what's happening now. You got this, you know, you're seeing people really becoming proactive about trying to do things. Uh, you know, they're not sitting on their hands, they're taking action and there's more of this sort of stuff that has to happen uh, in, in order to, to stop, you know, problems on the Great Barrier Reef. You got stuck on Rain Island, didn't you? I did get stuck on Rain Island. It was a weather event, Nick, yeah. So, so, so that uh, was Nick's fault. That was Nick's uh, fault. I, I, I didn't have a sat phone to ring him and blame him, so that was unfortunate. But, uh, yeah, I'm there in January, sort of December when the... Uh, the lows come through, you know. So the boat anchors up in a fairly dubious mooring and this massive squall came through. So the work program is a 24-hour work program and um, huge squall came through, boat drags anchor, so the boat disappears off to the horizon so they don't get washed up on the island. And, uh, yeah, basically it was left stuck out in the open in this torrential downpour for about 16 hours with all my kit 
um, and everything was in a pelican case. So all my. Well, did you take any decent photos of a storm? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. All right. Yeah, there's plenty of rain pictures there. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you're just out out in the middle of it. And it's funny. I got back from that trip and I'd lost five kilos. And as you can see, I'm a huge man. So losing five kilos for me makes up means I just disappear pretty much. You know. <laughs> so, yeah, that was just hard, sheer hard work. Yeah, hot, humid. Talk about dehydration, same sorts of problems, you know. But, you know, you've got a camera bag, you're there to do a job, get on with it, you know. Yeah. Uh, because, Nick, uh, this this storm is obviously your fault because your day job may be challenging when you're sent out to cover fires and whatever else may be happening, but your downtime, it's really not overly relaxing either, is it, because you're out chasing storms. Yeah, I, um, I find it deeply satisfying, though. It's like... Um, for me, in some ways, it's almost wildlife photography. I see these storms as giant animals that have a life of about four or five hours. And some of them, um, if you can get into the right position, um, you can see how organised they are. And they are. They're like an engine. They will have fuel coming in and um, exhaust coming out, and you've got to get into a position where that, um, that you can see the fuel coming in. Um, and it, like... May, they maybe will um, develop into a supercell where they start rotating and that, um, that fuel going in is going up, doing a big updraft and the outflow is coming out and wrapping around again and going up. It's um, when you see the process becoming organised and, and doing it, you, uh, you know, like I don't wonder why um, uh, people have seen these things as deities, especially when one develops a tornado, then it's like mind-blowing. You have just been over to the United States. In fact, you've spent the last couple of years on trips to the United States. Is that right? Um, Done in four, Tornado Alley? Four trips to the US, uh, one in 2006, um, 010 and 16 and, and 18. Yeah, but um, it, it like Australia, chasing in Australia is a frustrating sort of experience. Um, the a lot of the, um, the ingredients you uh, need can sometimes be mismatched or not quite there or not there at all. Um, but um, in the US, it's just like it's just always there, and even the bad days are amazing. But when it comes good in Australia, it's it's good. I'm always about trying to get foreground, um, so I'm always thinking about animals or, or people and how they're interacting with with storms. So a lot of my pictures you'll see. Um, the, the foreground's quite important. How close have you been to a tornado? Um, well, okay, so there's a couple of different types of tornadoes. There's your supercellular um, mesocyclonic tornado, which is what you're, you're there for, the big ones. But you can get what are called landspouts coming out of storms that are being pulled into the main storm. So um, there was an instance in 2006 where we were looking at where there should have been a tornado, it was, it was rain wrapped, so it's wrapping rain around it, so it just looks like rotating rain. And we're there concentrating on it, and I, I, we're actually in a car, and I had the car in drive, but just my foot on the brake, and I didn't have a park brake on, and then suddenly I looked to my right, and a weak tornado had come down right next to us, like literally about 20 metres away. And uh, I went, yeah, there's a picture there, so I just jumped out of the car, but forgot the car was in drive. And also because I was like, you know, a troublemaker, I'd put the childlike on so the guy's in the back up there trying to get out of the car. And the car just rolls off the road. So I'm there going. <laughs> and because I'm a professional, I took photographs. <laughs> and so anyway, it, it, uh, it rolled off and they were screaming and swearing at me. I ran off and opened up the car for them, which it, it was good for story. But they weren't too pleased about it at the time. So you haven't kept them as mates? No, no, we're good friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're good guys. Hey, we'll stay on this photograph as well, Nick, uh, because there is a tale to be told about oh, how you yes. got this storm shot. What happened? So this was uh, in the mid-2000s um, and uh, there was going to be a big storm event out near um, Kanamala, just south of Kanamala, so between Burke and Kanamala. And I, it's a, you have to be pretty sure to drive from Sydney to Kunnamulla in a single day that it's going to happen. So I drove out there. Um, it was Actually, it was going to happen the day after. So drove out there, happened to stop at a place right on the border. Um, I can't remember what the name of the town is. It's just a little little town. And I, I happened to leave my esky at this, um, this petrol station and drove off. 
Um, then photographed this. That was yes. an accident. Yes. Right. And then went off, got this picture uh, of this big storm moving through and it swept through. Spent the night in Kunnamulla. And then coming back, I, um, uh, like it was 45 degrees and there was an Indigenous family on the side of the road. Their car had broken down. So I pulled over, are you right? Um, and they said, yeah, 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 um, but can you take me in down the road and I'll get some petrol and come back? And I, okay, no probs. Dropped in. We pulled into a, um, a petrol station that, where I left the esky and I went, oh, I forgot my esky. And as we pulled in, the guy I picked up got out and the, the petrol station owner came out with a rifle, pointed at us. I'm going, <coughs> oh, this is interesting. I started raising my camera a little bit, and then he's pointed at me. But um, he's swearing at the other guy, telling him, um, you know, you stole some cigarettes. He goes, no, but he didn't. And, uh, like, after lots of swearing and rifle pointing, I'm going, okay. So I dropped him off down the road, and then I've gone, oh, bloody esky. That was a good one. It was a really good esky. So I drove back, and he's come out with his rifle again, and I've gone, I just want my esky. And he's he's... I'm just, there's a lot of swearing going along here, both from him and me. But um, uh, he's going, why'd you pick him up? You know, he stole cigarettes. And I'm like, how the hell would I, how would I know? I, I, it was like 50 bazillion degrees outside and I picked him up to get petrol. And then his wife's saying, of course he did, you stupid bastard. He left his bloody esky here yesterday. Just gave him his esky. And he goes, oh, well, it's too bad anyway because we caught the cops and they've got a, a roadblock down the road for you. We're just waiting for you. I'm just like, oh. <laughs> I just want to go home. So, uh, get my esky, get out. All right, right, I'm just going to knock this on the head. I just went straight to the police station. And so, it's like, at the, at the door. And then about five minutes later, this cop, with um, this in his undies, and his blue top, wandered out, and he's got his belt on, but just his wife fronts. And I'm just going, oh, my God. I really wish I had my camera. Um, <laughs> and um, he's, I tell him this story and then he starts laughing. Like, oh, you stupid bastard. You know, we're not putting a roadblock out for those two bloody idiots. Those two have been in it for, like, for years. It's just like, I just want to go home. Because <laughs> I've got like a 13-hour drive from there. So finally I got out of there. It was um, Barrigan was the town. Yeah, and that's also um, Australia's old, uh, oldest um, uh, hotel owner. She, a little old lady, she runs the hotel there. And she put you up for the night in Kanamala or Barragon. Later on, I, I told her that story. She was also, she goes, yeah, I know those two. Great. Yeah. So storms now going through that part of the world, they can just go on their merry way. Or would you chase it again? Up there, oh, it's awesome to chase up there, but you, it's, it's not really storm chasing, it's really just intercept because you've got one road. You've you got to try and get in front of the storm at the right angle and then it goes past you. You can't, it, like if you go off, even with a four-wheel drive, um, the amount of rain that comes down with a storm, it just, it, your chase is over. So, I imagine, Nick, that your rule uh, for when you're out filming the fires, which is just don't do anything dumb, is, is pretty much in play when you're chasing storms as well. You've had to... I've got the rules, but I tend to, like, yeah, break them constantly, yeah. Because it's like... Like, for instance, um, when, in 2016, uh, I brought my partner with me. She really loves storms as well, but I said, look, no, I'm going to keep this very serious. I'm going to drive when it's, you know, the stressful situation and, and, and we won't ch storm chase at night because that would be really dangerous over in the States, and also we won't core punch, which is when um, hail and rain and, and 100k an hour winds are being wrapped around where a tornado might be. And, and she went, okay, okay, good. And then very first storm we got onto in the States, I had a, a jelly belly, I wasn't feeling good, so she was driving, and it was at night, and I made a core punch, a tornado-worn storm. And so things were getting a little bit stressful, 100k an hour winds, hail, and we couldn't see... And she goes, oh, you need to take over. I can't do this anymore. And so, no, you can't stop here. There's a tornado in there. I can see it on the phone. There's probably a tornado. And then uh, she goes, I can't do it. So we swapped out in the middle of this hailstorm and I took over and then got us out. And there was a, hail, a tornado in there, but, you know, we survived. But she loves me. It was a real, um, it really tested our relationship. And, and, 
and she passed. Oh! <laughs> no. So wrong. Yeah, no, no, she, um, she's hardcore. It no, sounds, no, sounds really romantic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what? It, it, it is. Like, like, I fell in love with her that day. I, like, again, I was just like, you're the best. You've, yeah. You've had to uh, study up on meteorology and storm formation. Like, we've obviously heard that from some of the big words you're using to yeah. describe big clouds and storms and twisters. Uh, what tells you that a good storm is on the way and how do you choose where you're going to film it from to get those angles? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, there's many, many things that lead to a supercell. But the ingredients are um, instability, which means that there's a rapid change of um, temperature in the atmosphere, uh, moisture. So, uh, I mean, you guys will hear about, you know, when they say, oh, there's a low-pressure trough coming through. Essentially, it's like a wave. It's a wave of cold air, and that when that passes over a region where there's a lot of heat and moisture underneath, hot air wants to punch up even more. So that's how you get a tower, like a, a storm going up. Now they've got loads of that in the in you know in the um, in the tropics, but they're boring. They go up and they go down. They go up and go down. What you want is wind shear as well. So you need to have the winds coming in from the right direction and then changing with speed and getting stronger and direction at as they go up into the atmosphere. Then, as you can imagine, when you're starting to turn the winds, like storm's going to start turning and, and bending over. So that's the very basic sort of stuff. You have to be really super intelligent to understand these sorts of things, like myself. But, um, but um, it's actually really... Um, you can see it really easily over in the States. You can actually sit there and see these 3D models building and doing the thing. So that's where it actually, you really learn it all. And so how do you choose where you're going to be when you know, when you see those things happening? Do you go to the front? Do you go to the back, the side? You, in the US, you're after essentially the eastern, the sort of northeastern side of where, right under the main base, because that's where a tornado is going to come down. And you can essentially be in an area where you can be uh, a kilometre away from a major tornado and not even have rain on you. You can even be in sunshine because that's a, of your placement. If you're two or three kilometres out of placement, you could be in rain and, and, and hail and not see anything. <clears throat> so they actually become that organised. In Australia, um, they form slightly differently and they will tend to move in a different direction. But it's once again, you're still looking for the, north, um, the northern side, which is where you're hoping to see the tornado. Um, if one develops. It's a lot rarer in Australia, but um, yeah. So there's a very particular angle. Essentially, it's where the moisture is feeding into the storm is where you want to be. You have uh, told me that this is like an addiction for you. It's not even like an addiction. It, it is. is. Yeah. So what do you get out of it? Uh, when I... It's, it's for me, it's, it's like the manta ray. When you have this, these amazingly personal moments with these mountain-sized, like, uh, highly organised, like, beasts of the sky. This is where you, Gary, are supposed to pretend to be a storm? No, no don't worry. It's okay. You missed it. You're supposed to rotate. I'm not rotating. A tiny storm. No, he, I don't chase just... tiny storms. I'm not, no, you're not interesting me. Rainbow? No. Okay. No. no, I'm not a rainbow chaser. Um, so, uh, what was I? Addiction. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Um, well, it, for me, it's really capturing it at one of these things. But, it, it, like, I, if there is a big storm and I can't get there, it, it, it does sort of really uh, burn me. But fires, it's actually a bit worse because there is actually a, a, an important um, news element to it as well. And, like, storms in Australia tend to not be too bad. Cyclones are, 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 are pretty bad. But it's rare that you'll get a highly destructive, severe thunderstorm. Um, whereas in Australia, fires, particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, um, they're a big deal and they kill people. And so uh, when you aren't there to cover when a town goes through a highly traumatic event, um, like I feel like I've let them down um, and, um, and that they, you know, they're missing, they, their history has been, should have been covered for them um, by, by myself. Addiction 
And Gary, would you describe yours as a, an addiction as well? This, no. Th- th- you were talking earlier about how you have, you know, you really feel like you've got a mission to document the Great Barrier Reef and you're nowhere near finished yet, you say. Yeah, it's an obsession. Um, I Because I look at these pictures, I'm, I'm constantly shooting new material as well. So some of the things we've seen here today are 2008, 2009. So I have a whole lot more to do. Uh, so... Addictions, no, obsession is the word and it is constantly there because I live it and breathe it. Um, I have to understand it uh, to interpret it properly. Um, So I have to know what I'm photographing and it's what Nick's been touching on in terms of understanding what you're doing as opposed to just being an observer. It's a a lot more than that and uh, I go into it a lot deeper on a, a much deeper level you know, I'm not a scientist, I'm a photographer, but I, I have a brain and uh, I'm determined to keep expanding that brain and uh, part of that is to try and teach everybody else as to what we have here. You know, the biggest coral reef system in the world, it's World Heritage listed and it's got some stuff going on at the moment. So that should be more than enough to drive me to keep going. You're both dads as well. And you both do things for work that you are addicted, obsessed to, you know, possessed by that mission. Uh, is there a downside for you, for your family? How do you reconcile that? Uh, I try to limit my time in the field. Um, I'm in the field usually probably every third week uh, while I'm away. I'm, I met my wife on a diving trip, so she understands who I am and what I'm about. Um, It's still a challenge though. My daughter's 12 uh, and I've tried to um, take my family with me to a a few locations so they probably understand why these things have to be photographed. Do they know about the big chunk of iron? They don't know about the big (laughs) chunk of iron. So you're all sworn to secrecy here right now. Nobody, it's not leaving the room. It's great. Yeah, with myself, there's no doubt it puts huge strain on a family um, apart from the fact that it's very very difficult to organize um, life um, particularly in summer when fires or storms uh, it tends to be more fires that you know I'll, I'll have to go to um, though sometimes I, I just can't I, I'm looking after kids I've got four kids so um, sometimes I just can't go so but there are Times, I mean, they're very aware that I do storms and bushfires. And, like, particularly my 11-year-old, she actually gets quite anxious about it, so I really have to... I have to tell her about, um, like, what I do to make sure I'm safe and I'm always with the fire brigade and I I don't tell her any of the dumb stuff I've done. Um, But she also sees my photographs, so, like, I I sit down with her and explain how I got this and... And what decisions I made, but um, like there's just no doubt that it's because it's ra- it's very difficult to actually plan to do things when when these things are happening. Um, particularly like going to the United States for even up to just ten days, sorting out you know the kids have got cheerleading and all these other things and sports carnivals and all that sort of stuff. I have to put on hold. So yeah, it, it's. Yeah, it's a big deal. Would you take them uh, looking at storms, chasing storms? With oh, you? there's a couple of pictures of, of my kids. Like in Australia, yeah, and uh, in Australia, really the most dangerous thing is is driving. So you just do it smart or lightning, perhaps in a out in some of the the nasty areas. But I'll I'll try not to put myself. I mean, I won't be doing anything dangerous with my kids. I'll get into a position where they can look look at a storm safely. Yeah, you've you've got a photo. Uh, of one of your little girls, or is that yeah. your little girl? I think it's going um, to be the last one. That it, oh, is that it? No, it'll be not that one. It's the next one. There she is. This one here. So that I actually said don't get out of the car because there's quite a bit of lightning around, and she ignored me, and then I went, <coughs> actually, that's not a bad frame. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just say I didn't encourage her to get back into the car. Um, it, it, it was it was good, but then I, once I really nailed it, I would I'd get back in the car. I can't believe you're out there doing that. Unbelievable! How many shots does it take to nail it? Uh, about ten frames, and I just played around with the uh, with the composition, with the lines coming, and then get back in the car. 
But um, yeah, look, I, 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 I like, when they're a bit older, like I've got an 18-year-old son now, and once he's finished high school, I'll probably take him to the US on a, on a chase just so we can, can do it. I mean, I know I can do it um, pretty safely. Um, I mean, he's, he's a big boy now, but I also kind of want to give him a bit of a scare because he's had a, uh, a sheltered life in Mossman. Give him a bit of a scare. Yeah, yeah, yeah give him a bit of a scare. Yeah, Should yeah. introduce introduce him to that copper in his underpants. Though. Yeah, that was. Yeah, I, can't, I was. It made me. It was so what weird. I swear, I thought I was in Queensland. Yeah, we turn Watch it, it, buddy. We, we turn it on that sort of stuff up here. Nick, you confided in me, so I'll just get this one in. That you get bored of your photos pretty quickly. Yeah, so I like. I was just saying to Gary, like um, he showed me his like massive book there. Um, like I've designed about four or five books for myself, and by the get to time I get to the end of it, I'm utterly bored with my pictures, and I, I just look at them and go, I hate that picture. Really, I've got about ten photos from my career that I really go, like I feel myself that I actually captured the event perfectly or a, a, at its maximum. The others are all right. But, yeah, look, I get bored with them pretty quickly. So that's another one of the obsessive things is I'm always after um, other stuff. And when people go, oh, I love that picture, but I don't really like it, it's like, not Sick of talking about it. Yeah. Thank goodness you're doing it for us today, Nick. Thank you very much for your time today on Storyology 2018 and thank you to the audience as well. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Nikon, for supporting it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast. If you dig it, sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe and you'll get all our announcements, stories and updates. If you liked this episode, follow and rate us on your favourite podcast app. Nick Moyer's visit to Storyology was made possible thanks to Nikon Australia. This podcast was produced by Miles Holbrook-Walk for the Walkley Foundation at the 2SER Studios in Sydney, Australia and supported by Bond University. 